Is this thing on? I think so. The light's there. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Pat. This is Posh. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're glad you're here. We have a big episode coming up, but before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe, leave us a rating, and a review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at The Founder Hour. Thank you guys for being here. Spread the word and enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we are so excited to be speaking to George Arison today. George is the founder of Shift and has had several other projects in the past that we're excited to delve in on. Uh, and George, you know, let's dive right in. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your backstory and, you know, where you grew up. Um, I was born in Georgia, the country. I'm the first... Um kid out of the Soviet Union that they allowed to leave to go to a U.S. prep school that the government didn't pick to send abroad, but kind of did it on his own. Uh, it's kind of insane when you think about it, because that was nearly 30 years ago now, and um, the world has changed so much. Um, but I was very lucky to, to come to the U.S. I spent about four years living in Maine for high school, uh, and then four years living in Vermont for college. Uh, so again, a very different world than when I'm in right now. Um, and then I moved to D.C. and spent about 10 years there uh, and eventually made my way to the Bay Area. And George, I know uh, you have an interesting story about your dad and, you know, how, you know, he was kind of this crazy guy that had these crazy dreams uh, for you. So tell us about that. You know, you know, it, it is kind of wild. So Patrick and I are both Armenians, so we understand, you know, that region, you know, fairly well. Uh, and we know how, you know, those parents can be. Uh, so tell us about that. Yeah, so my dad had this view that his kids are going to live in America. And, you know, in 1970s and 80s, it was a totally crazy view to have, right? Because the Soviet Union is still totally kind of on and USSR and, and the U.S. are kind of in a position to destroy the world, right, together. Um, but uh, my dad has this very strong view that his kids were going to leave. He had a very strong view that the Soviet Union was going to fall apart, um, not really based on anything kind of factual, but more like his view of, how it was developing and the fact that his economy was totally backwards. He was very, very educated. Um, he was a you know physics PhD, had been building nuclear weapons for the Soviet Union until he decided not to uh, and got out of it. Uh, but you know, kind of that's what his career was initially built. And so he had a very strong year that the Soviet Union was going to fall apart. And so his kids were going to be able to go to the US. And he, so he forced us to study English very early in our, um, in our lives. I had an English tutor from the time I was two years old. Um, the first language I knew how to write in was English, uh, even though oh. you know it was not anywhere near my native language. I spoke Russian and Georgian first, and then uh, and then English. But I knew how to write in English before any other languages. And uh, you know, as the time progressed, and he would like terrify us by like really first me, and then my brother, because my brother was much younger. But like Soviet Union is going to fall apart. We're going to be killing each other on the streets for food. Like these things that you never believe, right? And then. Of course, all of it happened where the Soviet Union did fall apart and people were killing each other uh, in, in the streets for food and you know, starvation was a really big issue. Uh, but all this like crazy pressure to like, you got to study English, you got to be really good, uh, you got to figure out how to get out. Um, and ultimately it did work. And so I remember going back to, uh, to Georgia in 2000, I'm like, you know, how do you feel about all this was kind of my question to him. And he's like, well, you know, people would laugh at me and say, my kids are going to live in America, but now my kids do live in America versus everybody else's don't. So uh, I think uh, whatever he did, which was not normal, definitely uh, worked well and probably created psychological scars in me for the rest of my life in a negative way. But on the flip side, it was really productive. I mean, it was so much pressure that when I, he would say things like, if you can't read Shakespeare in English without a dictionary when you're 15 years old, I will never talk to you. Now, most American kids can read Shakespeare without a dictionary, you know, in, all through high school. But I remember in um, freshman year in, in, in high school, we had to read Roman and Juliet. And then I uh, wrote a paper on it. And I think I like a 92 or something. And I remember running to the one fax machine that we had at our prep school and faxing him the paper with a big fuck you written on top. Uh, <laughs> so... 
<laughs> but you know, in, in hindsight, that obviously was a really good thing that he you know pushed very hard for us to uh, to get up. And as a kid, did you have this vision of what you would pursue in your life or in your career? Like, did you have any idea what it was going to be, or or were you not certain yet? And uh, were in no, the process. No, I, I definitely did, uh, and it's not what I'm doing today. Although hopefully it is what I will do at some point in my life. Um, I had a very strong uh, view that you know you kind of I would come to the U.S., get educated, and then I would go back and go into politics. That's kind of summary-wise what I always envisioned for my life. Um, and you know, all through high school, that was kind of the, the dream. Right? Like literally in the mornings, I would go. Um, we had morning meeting at seven forty-five, and then we had study hall from 8 to 8.30 where you can go get extra help from teachers, which I didn't usually need. And so I would go to the library and spend the entire half an hour reading the Wall Street Journal, which most 14-year-olds don't do. But like, I really love politics and that was kind of my, you know, something I always loved. And that's why I always thought I was going to do is go back into politics. Um, but I kind of had this view that like, you needed to do something in business to be successful. I really love, you know, George Bush, uh, Senior and and Jim Baker as kind of like political idols, and obviously both of them had you know a career before politics, and so that's what I always aspired to do, like through high school and through college. And so I always knew I was going to end up in business in some way, but I didn't think know what business. I never thought that it would be technology, um, and I need, didn't really study in any way anything technology related. Um, so kind of coming into this was totally different, totally unusual, but. As you think about the skill set that you need to be a founder and the skill set to be really good at politics, actually, there's a lot of similarity um, because founders have to be able to kind of drive people to like really believe in something very strongly. Um, and you have to be able to you know, raise capital, which is to sell people on your vision and your dream uh, in a really big way. And I think those skills are very akin to what's in politics. And so in, in many ways, even though what I do today has nothing to do with politics, which I always thought I was going to do. Um, the kind of passion and things I'm about, uh, that I, things I'm passionate about in politics, I get to do in, in uh, being an entrepreneur. But I also do continue to have a very strong view of like, you know, you learn, you earn, you serve. Right now I'm in the earn mode of my life. And I think that one day uh, I will hopefully go into the serve mode of my life. Um, not, you know, probably for the next 15 or 20 years, but at some point. Uh, because, you know, we are really lucky to live in a country where all the dreams are possible um, and where you can achieve incredible things through hard work. But if you, we don't govern this country well, we're going to not you know, leave it to our posterity in the way we should. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think our governance is really good right now. And, and you know, I do want to be part of helping kind of clean that up when time's right. You know, George, I love that. And, uh, you know, funny enough, George Bush Sr. is probably one of my political idols as well. And you know, I love kind of the life that he led and obviously in business and then in politics. Uh, and I would love to get, you know, into that, you know, towards the end of the episode, you know, but would love to focus on your, you know, more so business career now and kind of lead into that. Yeah, um, when you came to the United States, uh, how old were you and what did you do when you first arrived? Yeah, so I came when I was 14. Um, so the story here is that in 1989, um, an American couple came to live in Georgia for six months. Um, they had started an organization called Project Harmony, um, which was a, an exchange organization that would take American kids to the Soviet Union for like two to three week exchanges, and they would take Soviet kids to the, to the United States for a similar time period, plus do like government sponsored student trips for like a semester, you know, American, Georgian, sorry, Soviet kids coming to the US for a semester or two. And after doing that for a few years, they're like, if we really want to learn what living in the Soviet Union is like, so we're going to go to Georgia. Uh, we had an empty uh, apartment that no one was using, and they kind of lived in that apartment. And in return for paying rent, they were, became my English students. Uh, and like, I already spoke English reasonably well, but needed like practice. And so that's kind of what I was getting from that. Um, and then they left me a book of uh, prep schools to apply to um, when, uh, uh, when I was older <laughs> uh, for, for high school. And so I, you know, wrote this letter to a bunch of prep schools, not really having an application, but like just the story of me. Um, and mostly this was that we had picked. And then I would send them out to the schools, had to find like a, another foreigner who was in Georgia who would take letters out of the Soviet Union because you couldn't really mail things from the Soviet Union to the U.S. Um, and then Kathy and Jared, this couple that was in Georgia, um, wrote reference letters for me, which was also kind of very unusual for a kid out of the Soviet Union getting, you know, American teachers writing him 
a recommendation. And so I got into a couple of these schools, um, got, got scholarships, um, and really was very, very fortunate with one particular school um, in Maine that gave me a really good scholarship. Um, Kathy and Jared had done an exchange program with that school in particular. They had taken kids from that school to Siberia um, for some exchanges and brought Siberian kids um, into to Maine. Uh, and so that was uh, the relationship there. And, uh, you know, that's how I ended up um, getting into schools. Um, I was, uh, you know, needed to get a visa. And so I remember, um, you know, this is like last days of the Soviet Union. We had to go to Moscow to get a visa. And, um, you know, I show up at the U.S. Embassy, like, like an overnight wait uh, to get into the embassy to see a consulate officer. Um, so, you know, people would like hire somebody who would stand in line for you until it was your turn and you pay them money. And so we did that and, and finally get into uh, to see the, the, the consulate and counselor and this you know, guy was like totally shocked that I'm like there on my own telling him, yep, I'm going to America. I have a scholarship to the school. <laughs> Here are my documents. It was like totally like random and what the hell are you doing? Um, I remember walking out thinking like there's no way they're going to approve me. Something bad's going to happen. But then the next day I got my visa and so it kind of all worked out. Um, and then um, got on a, you know, you know, a few weeks later, got on a plane um, from Moscow to, to New York. Um, Jared picked me up and we drove up to Vermont where they're from and that was kind of it. And then my life forever changed. Now, this is like 1992. So, you know, communicating back with my parents is like next to impossible, right? Like, um, you can call, but it's like four bucks a minute to make a phone call, uh, to, to Georgia. Uh, and they can try to call you, but they have to use a satellite phone, um, to, to do the call. And oftentimes like all circuits are busy, won't work, et cetera. So, I pretty much was, you know, completely removed from my family because you could never really talk to them um, for a pretty long time, um, which was, you know, obviously uh, quite difficult. But on the flip side, it did allow me to, like, integrate into America a lot better um, because, you know, I had to rebuild everything here. And so I built very strong relationships in the U.S. partly as a result of that. Did you end up going to college after prep school? Yeah, so I did four years um, of prep school. Uh, in in Maine, and then uh, and then afterwards, uh, I went to Middlebury uh, in in Vermont for for college. Um, you know, both Kathy and Jared, so the, the American couple that kind of helped me get here and really took over raising me in, in many ways, uh, they had gone to Middlebury, and so they really wanted me to go to Middlebury. That was uh, very much what they thought I should do, um, and I really fell in love with it actually over time. Partly just by hearing a lot about it, and partly by you know learning about it. And in particular, there was a professor there. Um, named Murray Drive, who teaches, he's still there, teaches um, American government and political philosophy. Uh, and so I really adored him. Uh, and I had a chance to, you know, go to some of his classes while I was still in high school and, and really fell in love with him. And so uh, it was a total no-brainer for me to, to go there. So I actually applied to go to college as a junior before I was even had graduated from, um, uh, from high school. And I was put on a wait list, which kind of boded well for me, I guess, to get into college the next year. And so then I applied again and ended up going to Middlebury and uh, spent four years there. Hmm. What, did, what did you end up studying? Uh, political science. Like almost all of what I studied was political philosophy and American government uh, and constitutional law. It was like probably you know, two-thirds of my, my coursework uh, was on reading classical books uh, and trying to understand what they have to say, uh, which is why it's like completely random what I do now. But I think, again, like a lot of what I do today is, you know, gather a lot of information, try to synthesize and understand what it means and make decisions based on it. And so reading great texts, right, reading Plato or Locke or Montesquieu is exactly the same exercise. Um, and so it's super helpful in developing your brains and trying to kind of allow you to analyze and synthesize information and understand what's true and what's not true. George, you obviously, you know, growing up in Georgia and then moving to, you know, almost the East Coast where those states that you mentioned are fairly, you know, more conservative. Do you think that mm -hmm. those had any sort of um, influence on your political thought and how you today function in business? Um, not, well, maybe. So look, I, I don't think Maine or Vermont are that conservative, quite honestly, and almost all my- Well, not anymore. Are, yeah, are, are very conservative either. Um, so I, you know, in the US, I spend most of my time around fairly liberal people or, or moderate to liberal people. Um, but I had a pretty strong sense of political ideas from the very beginning. So- my family was one of the very first families in Georgia to have cable. 
Um, and uh, this is like 1988, we got cable. But you only had two channels, and the two channels were CNN and C-SPAN. So, but, and I loved watching TV. Um, and the way my parents got comfortable with me, like, spending hours in front of the television is because, well, it's in English. And so at least he's, like, you know, learning English. And so I would watch hours of C-SPAN, like, you know, Senate uh, coverage, House coverage, um, uh, committee coverage. And so partly kind of listening to folks and what they would say, I developed a very strong political philosophy um, and uh, kind of what things I believed in and what didn't and what made sense to me. And to me, like, you know, what, what one would now call like libertarian political views, right? Like leave business alone and really kind of encourage it to do its thing and uh, don't bother it. Uh, government regulation is bad, et cetera, always made a ton of sense. Uh, and then, you know, the more left-wing position always kind of tied back to the Soviet Union, right? Like, hey, what's the difference really? It's just the one logical extreme or the other, number one. And number two, um, you know, uh, in college, I spent a ton of time reading political philosophy, right? And and kind of that gave me the foundational, like, hey, where do all these views come from, right? Um, and I think Marxism is just completely bogus as far as human nature is concerned. And so the left-wing position, which is ultimately a Marxist position, because it believes that economy drives all the decision-making, which I don't think it does, um, it it doesn't make any sense to me. And so that, like, really strengthened my points of view. And so I'm pretty, like, you know, sent in my positions in in many respects, at least at the foundations of it, although obviously how you think about policy from that perspective varies as well. But almost, like, a lot of people I really respect and admire from my early life in America, you know, whether they're adults or or people my age who are now adults um, are almost all liberal. Like it's, it's, it's very random, but I actually don't have as many conservative friends as I, as I have liberal friends. I know at some point you started working at Google as a project manager. Like it sounds like you're like on this path to becoming like a, a politician. And then all of a sudden you're at, you find yourself at Google. How did that happen? Well, there was a lot of things that happened in between. So after college, um, I went to DC cause I, I wanted to live in DC, but I had to work for a a business, right? Because I'd have an H-1B visa. And so I worked for a consulting firm for a year, um, kind of really very foundational stuff. And I thought it was going to be interesting, but really hated it. Um, and, but it was in DC, which was awesome because I get to do like politics kind of on the side almost. And then I started working on Georgia. So uh, I basically over time uh, got in touch with a couple of Georgian uh, business leaders uh, who were getting into politics, whom I had, you know, family-wise known for a while, but uh, hadn't personally connected in a long time until after I went back to Georgia in 2000. And they, um, you know, started to sponsor me to work at a think tank in D.C. on helping kind of promote democracy in Georgia. Right? Like, like trying to write about Georgia and trying to communicate to U.S. policymakers what was happening in Georgia. So we could, you know, push the U.S. government to then push the Georgian government to have democratic elections. Um, and so spent about uh, two years doing that. Um, Georgia had a really big election coming up in 2003. Uh, this was going to be like a really fundamental change of, um, uh, of leadership election. And they asked me to come back to Georgia to help run a political campaign. Um, I'm like, well, I don't really know anything about how to run a political campaign, but what if we hired a Western kind of political consultant to help us do that? And they're like, sure. So we hired a guy named Mike Murphy, who um, is you know, one of the best Republican consultants out there, brought him to Georgia and uh, developed a really good campaign strategy. Uh, implemented it pretty terribly, but as a strategy goes, it was actually really, really good. Uh, so then I spent about a year and a half working on that in Georgia, which was really eye-opening for me because it kind of gave me a chance to like go back to Georgia and see what that would be like. Um, and a big discovery was I actually hated it. So I was doing exactly what I always had thought I would do, but I really didn't like living in Georgia, uh, you know, uh, both from like the cultural sense of what it was like to be there to me being gay. And that's like very not accepted there. At least it was not back then um, to like really missing my relationships in the U S right. Like I had already done this, Hey, abandon everything, you know, and rebuild here. And then to like have to abandon that again and have to rebuild was just not viable for me in, in my head. Um, and so uh, we did do the campaign. We were not like great successful, but okay successful. So we, we achieved the minimal result, like get into parliament for a pro-business political party, which at that time period back then was very hard, but we didn't do as well as we had hoped. Um, and, you know, more, much more left-wing kind of groups won, but um, the results were okay. And so after that, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of done. Um, I want to go back to the U.S. 
Um, my best friend from college, Toby Russell, who's my co-CEO at my current company, Shift, um, had just joined BCG. So he's like, hey, you should come work at BCG, arrange for me to get interviews there. And I um, got a job. And But I couldn't start there because H-1Bs were out. And so I'm like, well, I got to figure out what to do for a year. Um, and so I decided to write a book about uh, Georgia and the campaign that I ran, uh, which ultimately Michigan State published in 2006. Um, and so then eventually I made it to BCG, was there for about a year and a half. And then Toby and I were like, we want to start a company, um, knew nothing about technology, but were kind of really into the idea of starting a company. And so we got together with a couple of other people and started a company called Taxi Magic, uh, which was a way to buy, um, so it was a way to book a, a taxi on a mobile device. And this is like 2006, 2007. Mobile devices are primarily Blackberries at this point. And like the idea of an app does not even exist. Like no one has apps. We were one of the very first apps to get on a BlackBerry and then connect to do something in terms of like an on-demand service, um, but really invented the idea of using mobile devices for um, on-demand services. I uh, spent about three and a half years doing that. Um, and all through that time period, I'm trying to get myself a, a green card to stay in the US because I'm like on H1Bs and eventually they're going to run out. And so like you've got to you know, stay permanent. And, you know, we applied for my green card and the government rejects it. We applied for again. They reject it again. And the argument always is, well, you have too much ownership in your company. And so we don't believe it's a real business, which we're like, well, we have investors, we have shareholders, we have leadership. I'm not the CEO, like all the stuff. And still, you couldn't kind of get through that. And so by 2009, 2010, our lawyers are like, look, we can try again, but you're going to be rejected again. And so it makes no sense to do that. You should try to get a job at a big company uh, to get your um, green card. And, you know, one of the other big learnings for me personally at Taxi Magic was that I love being an entrepreneur and I love technology, but being an entrepreneur on the East Coast was way harder than being an entrepreneur on the, on the West Coast. Um, and so I kind of wanted to move to the West Coast for the next company. Um, and so from that perspective, a, a larger company where I could both do the move to the West Coast and learn what that was like and also get my green card made the most sense. Uh, and that's how Google kind of really bubbled up to the top because uh, it is very good at immigration, and it's also like a great technology place to be at to learn um, how technology is done out here. Uh, and so that's how I made it my, my way to Google, uh, learned a ton over there, um, and then, you know, eventually started Shift and, and, and left to, to work on this kind of full time. And so that's sort of uh, I didn't, the journey. I didn't realize you had started uh, Taxi Magic before going to Google. So I guess talk to us a little bit about that. I know that, like you mentioned, that was early days, like the iPhone hadn't even come out. There was nothing called Uber or Lyft and those guys weren't even in the picture. Um, and yeah. I know Taxi Magic eventually, um, you changed the name to, to, to Curb. Um, and I yeah. think it's still around, if I'm not mistaken. T talk to us about yeah. how that whole idea came about. How did you get that company going? So I had a mentor named Tom DePasquale, who's a super prominent entrepreneur um, in the kind of DC, Virginia area, like also a great businessman, um, you know, learned probably as much from him as I did from anybody in my life. Um, and so he had built a company called um, Click, uh, ClickBook, which was bought by a company called Concur, which was an expense management tool for airline and hotel travel. Um, and I was at BCG traveling all the time uh, and having to take taxes all the time because I didn't have a license. And so kind of in conversations between him and I, you know, the idea for a booking tool for taxis was kind of born. He was coming at it from the expense management tool perspective. Right? He's like, well, ground travel is like 10, 15% of all travel spend. And it's totally not managed well because it's all paper and cash because you have to pay for taxes with cash. And it's like a, you know, cheating, really great way to cheat. And I was coming from like the booking perspective of like, hey, it'd be nice to be able to book a taxi to come to you. So you don't have to be out in the street in, in the middle of the winter when it's raining or, or, uh, or snowing trying to catch a, a cab. And so. That was kind of the genesis of the, of the idea. Um, and, and, you know, we thought that the mobile technology was going to be, you know, the future. And so that was going to be the next big platform, even though the iPhone didn't yet exist. And so that product was really well versed towards a mobile device. It was meant to be a business focused product because that's what Tom, Tom was really focused on and, and what made sense to him. Uh, and BlackBerry was used by most business people back then, right? And so that platform made a ton of sense. Of course, you know, over time, you discover that BlackBerry is terrible at opening it up to anybody else, which is a big problem for them and, and for us as well. Um, but that was the genesis of the idea and, and how it kind of came about. Um, we built a SaaS product, right, like a total software as a service product um, for enterprises to pay on a per-use basis. 
Um, and But ultimately, where we found a lot of usage was on the consumer side. And that's where the disconnect was for us, if you kind of think about the business and where we failed, is consumers love the product, but we were trying to charge them fees as if it was an enterprise product. And what we should have done is never charge fees to consumers and really focus on just like scaling consumer demand, getting a lot of taxi cab companies and a lot of consumers to sign up, forget about fees. And once we had demand aggregated and, and taxi companies aggregated, then figured out the fee structure. But because we were so enterprise focused, we could never get over the idea that, hey, let's not charge for something. And that was a big error. Um, and so we went into like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, let's say, way ahead of everybody else, right? Now, by now, iPhone existed. We were like really heavily downloaded on the iPhone. We were like 10, 15, 20% of bookings in San Francisco, Chicago, you know, Dallas, Texas, um, Denver, a bunch of markets that were doing really well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was a huge, and by the way, Apple was using us in, our, in their ads, like we were in their newspaper ads and stuff. So there was a huge opportunity for great growth. But we continue to do this, like, you must pay, you must pay, and, and to only rely on taxi cab companies for, for supply, rather than going out and getting our own supply. Um, and that really opened up an opportunity for Uber to come in with black cars, then for Lyft to come in with just random drivers driving a car. And then, of course, Uber copied that, and that kind of really destroyed the taxi industry in the U.S. Uh, but the taxi industry was kind of at fault because our product and a couple of other products that were built after us were really great builds for them to kind of innovate and offer a better consumer experience. And none of them really took advantage of that. It was like pulling teeth to get cap companies to work with us. Um, but if you look at Asia, where, you know, all this happened a little bit later, they saw, the cap companies there saw what um, Uber and Lyft did to the cab industry in the U.S. And so they were much more willing to cooperate with DD or MyTaxi um, or Grab as, as the kind of businesses over there. Um, and so now when you go to Grab or something, a ton of the supply on that app will be taxi cabs because they were much more willing to cooperate with, um, with these technology players versus what, you know, cab companies were in the U.S. Um, and so, um, you know, that taught me that like full stack makes a ton more sense rather than try to go piecemeal. And so while software margins were really much better, you know, you might need to have operations to be more successful. And that's kind of hardly how Shift has been developed this way. And George, obviously, you know, you have this whole career in politics and, you know, campaigning and et cetera, et cetera. You know, how was that transition like when you went into the business world and now you're learning things like operations and engineering and managing teams, et cetera, et cetera. Was that easy for you? Is it something that you enjoyed? Yeah. Um, so BCG was a like first first six to 12 months of BCG was drinking from a fire hose at like, you know. 10x the pace that you'd want. Um, and you learn a ton. Uh, the good thing is that this is just like almost designed for that kind of training because they hire people like, you know, out of undergrad or out of MBA who don't really know anything. They think they do, but they really don't. Um, and that you're going to train them. Um, I was lucky because um, the DC office where I was based um, had a lot more non-traditional hires than other offices. And so they were more like, okay, with the fact that they had to handhold you away to learning, but like, I had no idea how to use Excel, right? Like it's a completely foreign concept for me. Uh, and I had to learn. Um, had a couple of really good mentors um, at BCG um, who, you know, became partners at BCG eventually um, uh, after me, uh, after I left or some, some while that I was there. And so I learned a ton from them, but it was a really big kind of drinking from the fire hose experience, but also a ton of really great learning uh, in terms of, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so, really, uh, really learned a ton. Um, but, you know, BCG is, as, as consulting companies, like taking a risk is not really in their strong suit, right? Like they want you to uh, be much more measured in what is possible. And I'm much more of a risk taker. Uh, my whole life has been about risk taking. And so from that perspective, like um, long term, probably would not have made sense, at least from the point of view, of, like going from, you know, where I was to becoming partner. Actually, I probably could do very well if I like went into a McKinsey or BCG as a partner because then you can actually push for big changes, et cetera. But in the kind of more junior way, it's not, not me. Like I need to kind of drive change. That's what I like to do. Um, and so from that perspective, starting something on my own made a ton of sense. Uh, but I learned a lot and I'm really, really grateful for my BCG experience, both from the learning perspective and also the relationships perspective. Like 
Some of my best friends come from BCG, people I really love and adore, and who teach me great things all the time. Uh, and so that was obviously really, really valuable as well. When you sold, uh, you know, Taxi Magic, was it this feeling that, wow, you know, like, you know, I've made it, you know, we've, yeah. we've done so, it, I'm successful, that's it, let's go, we're going to run for office, you know, was that the mm -hmm. feeling that you got? No, so we actually, I, when I left Taxi Magic, we hadn't yet sold. Um, I left because of this green card thing, and it was still kind of fully operational. A couple years later, we, Toby and I had an opportunity to sell our stakes, and we did. And it was the, after that happened, uh, December 2012, um, that was the first time in my life where I was not li living paycheck to paycheck, right? Like, um, I mean, I, I had to build a good life here, but like, you know, still was on my own completely. And more than that, I had to support a bunch of people, like people in Georgia, uh, my brother here, et cetera. And so um, that was the first time I actually had like cash, uh, you know, cash in the sense where like it was, I didn't have to work for every day to feed myself, et cetera. And yeah, that was like a huge point of relief, uh, obviously, because, you know, after years and decades of not having that, you were like in a much more flexible position. Uh, but it was not enough money to like say, okay, I'm going to go retire and, and do something else. Nor did I really have a desire to do that. Like, I have a bunch more companies in me even today, but at that point I did even more so, obviously. Um, and so I knew I wanted to build more stuff. I, you know, I've, Back then, I felt like I was getting better as an entrepreneur. Now, I even more so think I'm better as an entrepreneur um, because I know what my um, strong suits are a lot better, but I also know what my faults are better today than I did back then. So uh, I still kind of dream of building great companies. And you know, I don't think I'm as good as Elon Musk is, <laughs> but like I do want to do awesome things in business that are like that, that have like really game-changing effect on, on enterprise and, and, and on how business is done. Um, and that's very motivating and, and fun for me. Talk to us about what inspired uh, Shift and and where that idea came from. And and um, were you still working at Google? Like, had you left the job? Like, around what time was it? Yeah. So, I mean, I knew that I was going to start another company, and I was waiting for my green card. And so, it's a matter of like when you know what happens when, etc. Um, I uh, and then Toby Russell, my co-founder at Taxi Magic, was also my best friend from college, and now is my co-CEO here at Shift. He and I would do a phone call on a regular basis. Um, he was on the East Coast, I was on the West Coast, um, to catch up about business ideas and, and what ideas we might want to pursue. It was actually his idea for us to start looking at the auto space. I didn't really have that in my head, but I had uh, sold a, or I had a leased car that I needed to buy out. Uh, and I couldn't really figure out financing for it because nobody would write a, a loan for it because they're like, go to a dealer and the dealer will take care of you, which I never understood why. Because I'm like, well, why would I go to a dealer for a, a car that I already have in my possession? Right? It made no sense. And so that, you know, he's on, hey, take a look at this. And, and I can say why in a second. And then that idea of like him pushing me to take a look at that really tied well to my concept of like, hey, there's a, um, there's a need here because I had this really bad experience with trying to finance a leased car that I was trying to buy out. Uh, and that's kind of how the idea became interesting to me. Um, Toby had been working at, um, at at Capital One, and so he was seeing where the opportunities were from the banking perspective. And that's another reason why he kind of really pushed me towards looking at, at, at used cars as a space. I, I'm not a car guy at all, like far from being a car guy, actually. Um, and so... I, um, you know, if you ask me that like, questions, hey, like, what about this model or that model? I'll be like, I can't answer you. But um, I did love the idea of touching a space or going after a space that was massive and that hadn't been innovated on in a really long time. And so that was one thing that was really, really appealing to me. The other thing I found really appealing is that um, you could do a, a big company here without owning 100% of the market by any means. Right? Like a quarter percent of the market could result in a really big company. Now, that at the same time, there were some like, turns out some really challenging things, which I didn't fully appreciate. Uh, and the biggest one of them is that operations is really tough. Right? Like I had spent all this time in tech, hadn't really ever done operations in any serious way. And, and I'm like looking at Airbnb, looking at Uber. I'm like, well, operations should be possible for tech companies, right? Like look at those two. Turns out what they do is not real operations. Um, and operations in a sense of like truly like say reconditioning a car, that's really, really tough. Um, and so 
Um, I, you know, we should have, uh, I wish I had known that better because uh, I might have made different choices in terms of how we structure the business, how we raise capital, how, what kind of people we brought on board, et cetera. Um, but that's definitely been a, a hard part of building this business is how complex it is from the operational perspective. So George, when you guys kind of are going back and forth and you finally land on this idea, um, what was that idea on day one? So the beginning of the idea was actually less about transactions and more around financing. Um, because again, like I was trying to finance this this car loan that I couldn't finance. Um, and uh, I'm like, why, why can't that be done better? Like, why do I have to use a dealer for that transaction? So the thinking was that all these transactions that happen peer to peer, right? Like you have a car to sell. I find you on Craigslist. I buy that car. And in those transactions, of which there's about 15 million a year, it's really tough to get financing on. Like just loan products don't exist for that type of a purchase unless you go to a credit union. And so our thinking was like, can we build a product that provides banks with the same verification and security and quality control that a dealership would so they, they could finance that loan? Um, and so that was like more of an Airbnb style product in some ways, if you think about it, because we would provide like a layer of security and safety uh, and the transaction management and, and identity verification, but we wouldn't be actually owning the car in our possession. What you discover though, is that A, on the one side, the banks, like they just don't want to do anything um, in that sphere unless the person who they're working with owns the inventory. And on the flip side, the consumers um, really wanted to get rid of the car rather than kind of use this layer product on top. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's even like, like if I'm going to do it myself, I want to do it like truly myself. I don't want anybody involved. Or if I'm going to use, you know, some sort of a product, I want people to take the car away and leave me alone. Uh, and so um, that's kind of how the genesis of then buying cars came into the equation, where initially we wanted to be less operational. But as we were more and more in the market, we had to kind of discovered our way into, hey, you have to be more operational if you want to be successful. Um, again, at that point, I don't understand how difficult operations are. So I'm like, okay, well, could be operational. Let's be more operational. And so I didn't really think about the complexity piece there, which is, you know, like a fault line that a lot of founders have because founders have this mentality of like, okay, here's the um, mountain. I have to get on the other side of the mountain, blow through it, right? Like do whatever it takes to get to the other side while going through they don't think about, or we don't think about the fact that when you do that, you might dig such a big hole in the mountain that the whole mountain collapses. Uh, so like we have a hard time fully kind of visualizing the second order impact of the things that we do. Um, and so for me, I'm like, oh yeah, operations make sense. We should do that without really thinking through what that actually meant. Um, and so that was a, you know, in hindsight, that was a really, really big learning. Um, so I know you and Toby started off as co-CEOs and you guys are still co-CEOs. How, how, what was your role um, and how did you guys go about splitting the role? But what did you like focus on mostly um, in those early days? Yeah. So in the beginning, Toby actually was living in Virginia and so he was not at Chip full time. He was just advising us, even though like he was the genesis, he and I were the genesis of getting the company started. Um, and then, you know, the hope and the vision always was that he was going to come on board full time. Um, so in the beginning, I did everything, right? As a, what a CEO does, build the team around me, doing different roles. Um, and you know that worked really well. Uh, and then Toby joined in 2015, and, and ultimately basically took over more and more of the operational and day-to-day company management stuff from me. Um, you know, I um, I kind of am really good at a bunch of stuff, and I'm not as good at other stuff. Uh, and you need me, and you want me leaning into the things I'm really good at. Uh, I think I do a really good job at like raising capital, kind of selling the business in terms of like, hey, come use us. Um, why the business makes sense, really good at strategy and like, hey, this is what we need to accomplish and this is how we should go up to do, uh, about doing it. Um, also pretty good at recruiting, like spend a lot of time recruiting people. So those are the things I spend my time on and Toby focuses on like, hey, how do we actually like, you know, make sure that we have execution in this business against the results that we want to achieve um, so that we can, you know, go, go to the next stage. Um, and, and that's how we tend to split work uh, today. I know um, you you guys have raised several hundred dollars combination of debt and equity since since then several million sorry several hundred million dollars <laughs> um, yeah what's your so talk to us about your approach um, to pitching to investors uh, you know is what's something that you know whoever's listening can take away if yeah. they have a startup totally. or are going to have you know that opportunity soon 
Yeah, so I think fundraising is very different between early stage and, and late stage. Um, like there's a just fundamental differences. So I'm going to talk a little bit more on early stage because I think that's probably more interesting to people. Um, you know, I, like for me, the best times to fundraise was always Series A, Series B. That's when I had the most fun. Um, and I, I call that a press of discovery. Uh, it's a period when you're like really meeting a ton of people uh, who are investors uh, and you know, understanding what are they interested in, understanding how does that relate to your business and seeing if there's a match between what they find interesting and what your business is doing. So a lot of founders believe that, oh, I'm going to like meet with an investor and convince that investor to invest in my company. And I don't think there's such a thing. I think you have to like discover if an investor is aligned with your business model, meaning does their thematic investment strategy match with what your business does? And only then can you talk about, hey, I'm going to convince them to invest in my company versus some other company because my company is right. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's a thematic match on, say, um, industry, but more like, hey, does this type of business make sense for the types of businesses this person wants to invest in? Um, and so I'm a big proponent of like meet more people versus less, which is counterintuitive. A lot of people don't want to do that, um, I, but I'm a really big believer in that. So I kind of have a fun period of like meet investors, have coffee, understand what they're into, I think is really helpful. To be perfectly honest, like some of the best learnings I've had uh, in my kind of process of fundraising has come from people who did not invest in the business, um, right? Because they poke at your business and at what you're doing in ways that is really informative of what you should try to think about addressing uh, once you are, um, you know, once you reach that point. Um, and in some respects, I oftentimes wish I had learned more from people who didn't invest because some of the criticism that they would have for us or some of the reasons and rationalities that they would give for why they're not making the choice to invest have been the reasons that have come to bite us. And I should have paid more attention to those things because I might have been able to correct for those earlier and avoided issues. Um, and so, you know, for example, Josh Koppelman, um, who I think is an amazing investor, is a, at a first round capital, you know, really didn't like how operational shift was. And that was like his big thing about it. Um, and like, I should have taken that way more to heart because I think I might have done some things differently had I fully thought through that. Um, and so I am a big, big fan of like this kind of investor discovery process and really learning from the feedback that you receive from people who say no. Um, so it's like point number one. Now, obviously, like not everyone gives you feedback. I've had people do things like, well, you know, thanks for spending like 20 hours with us. We just couldn't get there and can't really tell you why not. And you're like, well, that's not helpful. Like, what the what the hell right so people do that too and then also i've had people who like lie to me and say well i'm not really going to uh look at this competitor or i already looked at the competitor in the past and then turn around and invest in that competitor while after collecting as much information from me as possible so i've had both of those things happen and, and they suck but oftentimes i've gotten really really good feedback and, and really useful stuff i think another really big thing for me that i think people misunderstand and really should think about carefully has to do with pricing. Um, a lot of founders I talk to are like, well, I'm going to convince my potential investor that my company is worth X million dollars, right? Like 100 million bucks or something. But that's not how pricing works. Pricing is built around, hey, this investor can invest a certain dollar amount. They need to own a certain percentage of the company. What does that result in as far as own um, valuation is what drives the price of the company. And so... Uh, I think that's a really critical thing because uh, I think most founders don't appreciate how critical the money raised amount is to the discussions they have with, with investors. Um, and the larger that amount, the more likely that the better valuation you'll have, although valuation should not be by any means the focus. You should focus on finding the right investor to take money from. Somebody who's going to be with you through hard times as well as the good times rather than, hey, I maximize my valuation. I think that maximization of valuation is one of the most idiotic things that people do. And George, obviously, you know, 293 million or, you know, nearly the 300 million that you've raised. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's no joke, right? It's a substantial amount. Um, you know, what is that money being used for at this point in the game? It's been like, you know, what, seven, eight years since you started the business. Close yeah, to eight, six, I believe. Six years since we started the business, 2014. So we're coming up exactly in six years, actually in June in terms of sales. Um, so look, um, our business is uh, is 
high level of phone, right? Like we have to sell a certain number of cars to make money on those cars to then pay for the corporate overhead. Um, and you have to be, you know, somewhere between on the low end, 25,000 on the high end, 50,000 cars a year to make enough profit on those cars to cover your corporate overhead. Um, obviously, like you can make more profit per car if you're growing slower because you can drive higher gross profit. Um, but, you know, you want to have growth and you're kind of balancing those two things. Uh, and so vast majority of the money we, we are raising and the vast majority of the money we've ever raised and spent has been on the corporate overhead to try to sustain this operational business at the bottom to grow enough to get to the point where you can actually pay for the corporate overhead. That's where most of our investment has gone into. A big portion of that is the technology platform investment because we're, we're kind of this operational business down here and then a, a platform business on top, which can be used by our operation or any other operation as well, right? Like eventually our technology hopefully will be used by other dealers as well to offer our type of a customer experience to their customers. And so a, lo- a big investment that we make every day is in the technology that underpins the operation um, that, that we built. Um, and so a lot of what we do is technology driven is like there's leveraging technology that we're creating. And so we are investing substantial sums into people to build that technology, that, that, that kind of, you know, engineering. And in some respects, kind of what I'm describing is like Amazon, where like when you shop on Amazon today, something like, you know, 60, 70% of items you see are not owned by Amazon, they're third-party items. And, you know, our vision is also the same, that over time, dealers list with shift, um, and we then do fulfillment for them, or maybe we don't, maybe they don't own their own fulfillment using our tech, but our tech is used to kind of support not just our operation, but these third-party operations as well. So long-term, what's the vision for this whole space, the, the used car space, even the new car space, you know, yeah. as technology, uh, you know, newer technologies start getting introduced as autonomous vehicles, eventually, you know, aerial autonomous vehicles, you name it. I mean, obviously the, the, the vehicles are changing, but is the model going to change too? Or, or is that, do you see that staying yeah, it's interesting, right? So one of the things that is really interesting about the auto space and what made me really interested in it is the fact that the car itself has become a computer, but the way you sell a car hasn't changed at all with computers. And that's just the dichotomy of that made no sense. Um, so, and there's regulatory reasons for that, et cetera. Look, in a weird way, the model that we built for, for how to sell a car, which is that you find the car you want online, and then you either buy the car fully online and it's shipped to you, or you book a test drive and the car shows up in, in your do- driveway and then you are able to buy a car on an iPad device in your driveway or in your house was like designed for the world of COVID, right? Because people don't want to go into a store. They want it like done in front of their house. So, or done fully online. So we've created this like great customer experience that is really well designed for the current world. And I think that what COVID is going to do is really accelerate transition to digital purchase of a lot more people than would otherwise have happened. Eventually, we'd all get there, but the speed by which we get there now, I think will be a lot faster. Um, and so I personally believe that car ownership will very much be in play for a long time. If anything, I think more people will own a car after this virus and the lockdowns than before. We already are seeing data coming out in New York that the metro, the subway system, and the public transportation system was a huge spreader of the virus like one of the reasons why new york has it so bad is because public transport is such a big part of life there much more so than anywhere else in the country and you know you spread you're like all close together and it spreads kind of thing and so i think a lot more people are going to choose to drive and own a vehicle than before and you know it's anecdotal but like we talk to a lot of people uh, who are like yeah i never would have bought a car except for this situation now i'm actually going to own a car and so um, imagine about to start a Google consumer survey on this thing. Like if you don't own a car, have you thought about buying it because of COVID? Um, and so, uh, I, so I think that'll be really interesting. I think the demand is going to jump a lot. Uh, I don't think people are going to use public transport. I think people are going to use Uber. Um, so I think that's going to be really helpful for the auto industry and the retail auto retail industry as well. Um, but, you know, I think the other big outcome is going to be when behavior changes, it usually stays that way for a long time. And so I don't think people are going to want to go to stores for many, many months. Um, and so people will need to offer a much more digital transaction 
model than they're offering today um, across the board. And that's going to really, really be good for the auto industry. I think it's going to really accelerate transition to a better purchase model for consumers. Um, and uh, ultimately, consumers are going to be the winner. Now, look, this situation is like horrible, right? The, the, the level of impact this is having on our livelihoods is really, really awful. Um, and, and I feel terrible for all the people who are impacted by this. And so, yes, the end state might be better, but like we also need to be cognizant that the economic impact of the lockdowns is just mind-bogglingly terrible, way worse than I think anyone thought. George, one thing, you know, that I want to ask you was when somebody goes to the Shift website and is shopping for cars, right? The pictures are like beautiful on there. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it almost reminds me of uh, the Airbnb story where early on mm-hmm. users were, you know, posting their own pictures and sales were not good. And then, you know, who, what's, the, what's the YC Combinator guy name? Paul, Paul Graham. Paul yeah. Graham, I think, suggested to the two founders to go and get a camera and take these pictures themselves. And suddenly they see this increase in, uh, you know, in bookings. Yeah. How does that process work for Shift? Yeah, totally. So actually, uh, good founding story for me. So one of my co-founders, Joe Washington, was at Stanford when we were working on the company. And Nate, the CTO of Airbnb, came to teach in his class. And so Joe went to him and said, hey, like, do you mind if we come and see you? Because... Um, we're working on something in auto space that has a lot of similarities to Airbnb. Now, at this point, Airbnb is not yet like the behemoth that it is, right? Like, it's <laughs> still early. And so Nate's like, sure, come see us. And so he was actually super generous with his time, like a few times to me after that. Um, and one of the, there were two things that came out of those conversations. The number one, um, but both of them were tied to this like wow moment. So he actually told us like, look, like for us, the wow moment was the, um, was the, um, uh, the photos. And we're like, look, that's a really interesting point and probably is true for us as well. We have to have really awesome photos um, for the car. And and yes, I think it's 100% true. Like people really want uh, amazing photos. The other thing was like we needed our own wow moment because I don't think photos were going to be enough. And that's where the test drive delivered to the customer really kind of took off for us, right? Because we would we came up with this idea, hey, we'll deliver a test drive to you. Um, and uh, we would go around talking to you know seed investors uh, product people about it. And then usually we describe this, like we'll bring the test drive to you. And the response was, oh, wow, that's amazing. And so we're like, okay, well, when everyone says, oh, wow, you clearly have your wow moment. And so that's how the idea of a test drive delivered to the customer was, was born. Um, so Airbnb's, you know, founding team had a really big role in kind of helping us figure that out. No one said, hey, go do that. But kind of pushing us on your missing this wow moment uh, was really, really critical. Uh, and so, yes, I think uh, photos for them and for us are very important. I'm curious, um, with any marketplace business, you know, and, and the reason why so many fail or end up failing is, is because it is this two-sided thing mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like this chicken and egg, especially when you're first getting started. It's like, yeah. do I focus on getting the, 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 the sell side or the, the, the customers that are going to be yeah. purchasing from totally. those people that are making the, how did you go about, uh, going about the whole process from the beginning? Totally. So I had spent a ton of time talking to a guy named Simon Rothman, uh, who's a partner at, uh, Grela Capital. Um, about this whole marketplace kind of dynamic issue of like two-sidedness and the difficulty. He's a marketplace expert um, over there. Um, and uh, and one of the things that I really liked about the auto space was the fact that there are these third-party listing sites like cars.com, AutoTrader, and CarGurus, which allow you to get a market going without having to focus on the demand side. Now, that comes with a lot of problems because your the customers who are buying from those websites are usually very price-sensitive, and so they don't want to pay uh, you know, the right price for the car um, and conversions are not as good. But in sense of like getting going, it's a really cheap way to get a buy side going. And so usually with our business, the in the beginning, supply is the constraint. Like when you get going, you need supply, you can use these third-party listing sites for demand. Then word of mouth kicks in and marketing kicks in and you can start focusing more on demand. And uh, and then, and that's, and then um, you know, you kind of get supply from that as well. Um, so that's how we approach that. But my experience, at least for our marketplace business and also talking to a lot of founders who have done marketplace businesses, is that there's never like you're always supply constraint or you're always demand constraint. It switches and it switches by market. Like you might be supply constrained in San Francisco and demand constrained in LA and vice versa. Um, usually if a company is always supply or always demand constraint, it's 
not a good marketplace because you kind of are building on itself. Right? Like I have a lot of supply, I work on demand, then I have a lot of demand, I have to work on supply, now I have enough supply, then I have to work on demand and kind of like step change all the time versus if it's just one, there's something wrong. And so for us, it's always been changing. But in the beginning, it's always like, hey, I can generate demand for these third-party listing sites. Let's get, let's get a lot of supply going. And then it switches and then switches back and so forth. And I feel like it's like that in pretty much any marketplace where, you know, as, as supply and demand shifts, you know, price obviously is affected too. And so um, it's, it doesn't seem like it's too different than, than what existed before. It's just a different way of going about it. Yeah, no, look, shift is not, a, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We just took a lot of stuff that happens offline today to be digital. Right? Like that's ultimately what this business is. We are using technology leverage to enable an operational business that previously was done all manually. And at the concurrently create a ton of transparency in the space to address the fact that like it's a super untransparent space that really, really hurts the customer um, and doesn't really focus on helping the customer. And George, it seems like there's a lot of challenges in this business. Is that something that still, you know, keeps you up at night? Is that still something that interests you? I mean, or at one point, are you just like, you know, I'm tired of dealing with problems and challenges all the time. You know, let me move on to something more steady and consistent. No, there's definitely challenges in this business. Um, and, you know, uh, look, most businesses will have challenges, right? Uh, now, regardless of the, the lockdowns, now I don't think there's a business that does not have challenges. Um, but you get a lot of strength from the team that you have and the team you've built. Uh, we've been aiming to build a stronger and stronger bench over time so we don't have to focus on everything, but they can focus on things and we can focus on other things. So that's been very successful. We hired a very strong COO about a year and a half ago. We've hired a really good, strong VP of marketing and, and VP of finance as well. Um, and so there's been some really interesting kind of hires we've been making um, and, and focusing on that. Um, and that really helps. Um, so I'm still super excited about it. Now, I do, look, usually most founders out their usefulness at some point. I don't think that's happened at Shift yet, but I also know that at some point it will. Um, I'm really focused on like, hey, let's build a great business. Let's build a great team for that business. And then let's get this company to be a public company. Because ultimately, that's the best way to ensure liquidity here uh, and have a good outcome for everybody involved. So I know you mentioned early on that you had a couple more companies in you uh, and you're still a young guy. So do you see yourself starting from zero again or, you know, would you want to kind of go into another company perhaps that's not doing as well and change the course of you know, that company or you know, completely just get out of business at that point? No, uh, I think I would start things from scratch. Um, there are things I want to do that are different uh, in terms of experiences. Like, for example, I would love to join a board of a much more uh, kind of non-technology business, to be honest, uh, so that I can like learn new things. And, like something that kind of is interesting to me. Um, ideally, one that you know, well, not ideally, like one of the areas I find really interesting is things that have involved you know, children's products. Um, because I, I just had two kids uh, seven months ago, and so that, that world is really interesting to me right now. Um, and so um, so kind of, you know, there are things I want to do that are not startup-focused, but uh, I love the early stage of a company. The, the first two, three years for me are super fun. Um, I, I totally love it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that one day, sometime in the future, I will probably start another company or two or three. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say the children's space. I think our last podcast uh, was with a company called Brella, and they're actually in the childcare business. So, you know, it's I feel like it's going to be something that uh, is going to be very prevalent in this next decade as we have a lot more working parents that are constantly, just you know, they're not at home. So I think there's going to be a huge opportunity there uh, for the children's space. So interested to see you know what you end up doing there. Uh, but, you know, we mentioned early on, you talk about, you know, George Sr. And you talk about, you know, Jim Baker. Uh, and Jim Baker happens to be one of my good friend's mentors. And he used to intern for him. So know a lot about, you know, him. At what point do you think, you know, you'll get into politics? You know, and in what capacity? Is it going to be something that you think will be more so need-based, like the businesses that you've started? Or will it be one of those life passions that you wanted fulfilled? Yeah, in what capacity, I really don't know. It's hard to tell. And, you know, what I've found is that it's really useful to dream and have a plan for, like, a broad area. Hey, this is what I want to be. How that materializes, one never knows, right? Like, I moved to California with the idea that one day I would start a company uh, after I was done with Google. 
but I had no idea what company I would start, right? So I started a company, but like what, how and what, I had no idea. Um, and so the same way, like I'm pretty sure that sometime when kids are in kind of like out of high school, so to say, or in high school, um, politics will be calling me. Um, you know, we are, um, uh, my husband and I are rarely really family focused. <laughs> uh, it's very important to both of us. Um, we like moved down to Palo Alto to be close to his parents and, and his sister. We moved my mom from Connecticut to California so she could be close to the grandparents, uh, just to, to her grandkids. Um, and so like uh, kind of right now, my, I have two focuses in my life, which is like kind of company, right? And or whatever company I might be working on and my children. Um, and, uh, and that's the big thing. Uh, doing politics is not uh, in, the, in the cards because of that. But once kids are older, once kids are like, you know, middle high school or in college, it'll be much more of an opportunity to kind of do that. And good news in life is that, you know, we live longer these days. And then I feel like 40s and new 30s, so to say. And so um, I think that that's awesome. And, and, you know, whatever you think of the Democratic presidential candidates, we had uh, 77, a 78 and a 79 year old. A set of front runners, and so that makes me pretty excited because that says I have a lot of time left to do a bunch of cool stuff. That's true. Do you? I'm curious. Do you still keep in touch with, or or where are that? Where are the the couple that really raised you? The the American yeah. couple. Do you still keep in touch with them? Oh yeah. No, no. They live in Vermont, and they're amazing people. They have two children of their own, um, who I'm very very close to. Um, and uh, yeah, they. Uh, I mean, like we uh, introduce. Our kids, I mean, our kids are only seven months old, but, you know, like for our kids, they are their grandparents, just like the other grandparents, right? And so they have been an incredible influence on my life and um, and on many, many other people's lives as well. And so they've done an incredible uh, thing for me and I, I adore them and uh, and they're awesome. And then, you know, they FaceTime with the kids and it's really a lot of fun. And I know for me and Patrick, like, you know, being Armenian in our culture is something that we cherish and something that is a part of our, you know, everyday lives, really. Do you feel as though, you know, growing up, you know, in, you know, as a Georgian that, that that's played an influence in your uh, developmental years, but even now, uh, as you raise your kids, is that something that is important to you? Yeah, it's, it's really important to me. And I think it's ex- expressed in a few ways, right? So first for the children, um, we, uh, or I really wanted the kids to learn Georgian. Um, I think my husband kind of humored me. I don't think he'd care per se one way or the other. But, uh, but I really wanted to, um, you know, partly because it's Georgian and partly because I really wanted them to learn a second language. And so what we set out to do was that once we were hiring a full-time nanny, uh, we decided to hire a Georgian-speaking full-time nanny, uh, which was pretty tough because like, there's not a lot of Georgian-speaking people in, in the U.S. Um, turns out that there's like a good group of people in, in the Bay Area who moved from Georgia, um, you know, all legally, like one green cards or whatever, and found yeah. this amazing woman who, you know, has raised her own children and has been been doing nanny work a lot. I think she was herself shocked, like some dude who speaks Georgian kind of reached out. But uh, so she's been with us now for um, a couple months here. Uh, she lives with us. And, uh, you know, amazingly, Luca, our, our son, is becoming bilingual. Um, so and, and Amelia, too. Uh, but Amelia is not as verbal, so she can understand things in, in, in both languages. Luca, like, now, you know, says Dada, like, hi, Dada, and then he'll sometimes say Mama, which is the Georgian word for for Dada. And you very much know that, like, he knows what he's saying. It's this weird thing. And so it's amazing to watch kids kind of do that. And so we're going to try really, really hard for them to learn um, Georgian. Um, like, not the most useful language <laughs> in the in the sense, but I think it'll help. And so, like, a part of the reason for, for it, though, is also I want my kids to appreciate that um, the life they have didn't just kind of drop out of the sky or grow on trees. Uh, it took a lot of work. And so there's a lot of research on the immigrant effect, right? Like that the kids of immigrants uh, tend to work XYZ hard and then like it dilutes itself big time, the second generation. And so my hope is that by teaching them Georgian, that, that'll actually amplify um, the immigrant effect. Um, you know, like they can they can appreciate how hard life is over there and how fortunate they are to like, you know, be growing up in Palo Alto um, I mean, like one of these like wealthiest communities in the world where everything is perfect, um, but that they really need to take advantage of that because they own incredible responsibilities to a lot of people who came before them who made that all possible. Um, so that's, that's very much there. 
Um, and then the other wave is for me, like, uh, you know, there's this like weird attraction to Georgia is we actually have a team at Shift that works in, in Georgia. We have about 80 people in, in Georgia. Uh, it's all kind of uh, all our manual stuff. So like, you know, cleaning up the photography of the cars, for example, or posting the photos on our website, um, the, the kind of customer service email replies, et cetera. All that is done um, out, out of Georgia. Um, and, uh, and, you know, for me, that's a huge kind of uh, makes me feel really happy that I can do that, right? Or we can do that. It's huge value for ship because we like, we get great people for very low cost. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been a very big part of making the company be successful. But on the, and at the same time, there's like, you know, 60, 70, 80 people in Georgia who have a very good financial life, um, because we are able to do that. And, you know, a random person probably wouldn't say, hey, I'm going to put my outsourcing shop in Georgia, but because I knew this woman who was a, um, really good, you know, um, student and, and mentee of mine who had come to the U.S. to study as well and graduated from college here and then went back to Georgia. I'm like, Hey, do you want to, you know, kind of start this team for us? back in 2013 and she did. And then it kind of, you know, grew from that two person operation to like 80 people. Uh, and so that works really, really well um, as well. And then um, through that kind of work, I also met another um, team in Georgia that, that that is a very technical team doing some really cool AI work. And so I've kind of involved a little bit with their company as well. And, um, you know, brought that, helped them bring that product to the US by kind of like helping them kind of shepherd through what they need to do to get a company going in the U.S. And so now they are, you know, selling their product to U.S. customers, um, which is totally, uh, you know, first, basically first Georgian business to do that, uh, raise money in the U.S., et cetera. So that's also kind of really, uh, really awesome to see. Um, there's a lot more like Armenian companies that have done that. And this is the first time that the Georgian company's done that. That's I was going to awesome. say, yeah, it's, it's really great to see some of these smaller countries like Georgia and Armenia that traditionally haven't been able to have those opportunities, um, especially in technology. But as it as a, it's advanced so much in the last even several years where um, it's, it's great to see a lot of companies like sort of outsourcing to them because there's so much great work and talent coming out of out of out of these countries. Um, yeah, yeah, Georgia has been that. really awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I think that the kind of distributed workforce is going to be a bigger and bigger deal all the time because you kind of have no choice. And so, um, yeah, I think that's very true. And George, you know, we're so excited that we did this and hopefully, you know, we can maybe one day come up to Palo Alto. I know we've been doing some of these virtual interviews, so hopefully yeah. we can meet in person and we'll share an Ajar ski or two with you uh, and, uh, you know, celebrate both of our cultures. But thank you so much and, you know, stay safe and stay healthy and uh, good luck with everything else that you're doing. Awesome, really appreciate you uh, doing this interview. Thanks, George. George.